0: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olai Neaton. The actor Dana Andrews worked with some incredibly famous directors, including John Ford, Otto Preminger, William Wyler, and Elia Kazan. He also played romantic leads alongside some of the great beauties of the modern screen, such as Joan Crawford, Elizabeth Taylor, Greer Garson, Maureen O'Hara, and Gene Tierney. And yet he remains an underrated actor, an actor's actor. Hopefully Carl Rolison's biography, entitled Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews, Is about to change that. Hi, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us for new books and biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yes. Um, Well, I was. uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and went to Michigan State University as an undergraduate and uh, began as a major in drama, and then uh, got very interested in writing and literature, and uh, eventually went to graduate school at the University of Toronto and did a dissertation on William Faulkner, and at the time I didn't realize this, but uh, I was interested in Faulkner's, uh, what I call, uses of the past, uh, really his his vision of history, and uh, what I ultimately realized after I got my uh, degree and finished my dissertation was it wasn't history per se, it really was biography, what really interested me was how his characters, particularly in a novel like Absalom Absalom, spent so much time brooding over the past and thinking about the correct interpretation of the people that they were interested in so on. And that's really when I began to think about that, and then I got interested in uh, the work of Norman Mailer, and I read his biography of Marilyn Monroe, and what I really liked about his Monroe book is that He didn't just write about her, but he wrote about the difficulties of biography. And I suddenly realized, oh, that's really the kind of writing I want to uh, do. It's not literary criticism per se, but it's this mixture. And because of my my interest in drama, too, I see a very strong connection between drama and biography. I think the, the actor, of course, is interpreting a character and, in a sense, impersonating someone else. And that's very much what the biographer does.
0: Hmm. So you've obviously written a lot of biographies. What drew you to the story of Dana Andrews?
1: Dana Andrews uh, it was... Uh, all that I knew about Dana Andrews was the film that made him a star, Laura, this film noir. Uh, and I love that film. Uh, it was a film that uh, I would watch uh, almost every year. Uh, I've probably seen that film a dozen times. And uh, it also reminded me a great deal, I have to say, uh, the character of the detective of my father, who was a plainclothes detective in Detroit. And so there was a real sort of autobiographical connection. But what what happened was I didn't set out uh, to write a biography of Dana Andrews, but I'm editor of the Hollywood Legends series that the University Press of Mississippi publishes. And uh, one of Dana's daughters actually contacted the press and asked them if they knew of anyone who might be interested in doing any biography of Dana Andrews. And so I was called, someone at the press called me and and asked me as editor of the series whether I knew anyone. And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. And they said, who? I said, me. (laughs) And uh, it was was a gut reaction. I mean, uh, I really didn't know... uh, Anything really about his life, I just knew that he was uh, he just seemed immediately to me to be an attractive subject and uh, The next thing I did was uh, call uh, dana 's daughter, who uh, really wanted this book to be done, and we talked about biography and how I did biography and what I proposed to do with her her writing about her father 's life and she she and I explained to her I, I work very independently, I certainly wanted to interview them and look at any papers that they had and uh, she was completely accessible as was her sister Kathy and their and brother Stephen. So I, I really lucked out. I was very fortunate.
0: Yeah. Um, this kind of ties into that. What sources were most helpful to you? Obviously his family was a big one.
1: Yes, and he himself, although he died in 1992, was the biggest help of all <laughs> because unlike a lot of actors who don't necessarily write a lot or aren't even that Articulate outside of their their, their actual uh, acting. Uh, Dana Andrews kept a diary, and he was a magnificent letter writer. Uh, and of course, that's a boon to a biographer to have a subject uh, who's not just a performer, but who who thinks about his performing and and gives you a, a record of it. So that, in particular, and the the uh, openness of his family, uh, there weren't any. Sort of off the record subjects that I had to deal with uh, made it just a, a work of for me a great intensity and also a pleasure.
0: So throughout the book, you use different versions of the subject's name. Can you explain the yeah. reasoning behind this a bit?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, he he was born uh, in Mississippi in a small town actually called Don't D O N T Mississippi. They thought it would be funny, you know, for people to write on the envelope, "Don't miss." uh that town no longer exists and he was born uh, uh Carver Dana Andrews the Carver came from a professor and the Dana came from a professor both professors were uh admired greatly by Dana's father who studied at a seminary and uh he uh, sort of honored these two great teachers of his by giving his son that name so the Dana Andrews we knew grew up, grew up in Mississippi and then in several small towns in Texas, and well into his twenties, really, uh, anybody who was a friend of his uh, called him Carver. Uh, and it was only when he got to college uh, and began to think seriously about an acting career uh, that he decided that that middle name, which until then he had never really, really liked it very much. Uh, he thought it would be distinctive to be called Dana Andrews rather than Carver. But so much of his identity is wrapped up in Texas and his upbringing that it seemed important to me to call him in the first part of the uh, biography Carver. Uh,
0: you also use the first person in telling this story, not constantly, but at times, uh, which is pretty yeah. rare for biography. What made you decide to use this?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, Using first-person biography is very tricky, and I think I used it more in this book than any of my other books. Uh, I think because I felt so personally involved in the story, and it's always been a kind of frustration for me and maybe for other biographers as well. When you're writing a narrative, people want to write, they want to know about your subject. They don't really want to know about you. They didn't come to the book because they want to know about you. On the other hand, if you think of a, if you think of a novel, for example, and you have a first-person narrator, you've got to know about that narrator. You've got to know at least something about that narrator to really sort of evaluate the story. So it seems to me biography, at least some biographies, it's like the biographer has you know one hand behind his back or her back because uh, there, there, that that other part of the story in the sense the autobiography can 't be told uh, because of most readers unless the the biographer is a terrific writer like Norman Mailer and is a public personality already it 's very difficult. But I thought the way to introduce myself into the story was to say a little bit about, I do say at the beginning, I mentioned my father and my father's work, and I mentioned, in fact, uh, talking with his daughter, uh, Susan, about her father and her giving me a version of his Texas background, which turned out, much to her amazement and, and to mine as well, not to be very accurate. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the, 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 the biographer 's process of finding out the story I thought would be of some interest to readers. Usually, what biographers do is they write an essay after they finish the book because I think they do have all this pent up feeling about their own involvement in the story, but they feel it 's inappropriate to put it in the book. so then you see the article you know in in a magazine or a newspaper about how did I come to write about Virginia Wolf and that sort of thing and it 's rare, very rarely in the biographical narrative itself, and for years. I've been wrestling with, well, how can I do that? And I think some readers like that, and I think there are probably readers who, who just assume, well, I don't want to hear about you. I just, I just want to hear about Dane Andrews.
0: For what it's worth, I thought it worked very well. It, well, jumped, it jumps thanks, out yeah. at me because I, I read a lot of biography and I know how rare it is, but I, it, was, it was not intrusive in any way, and I thought it worked really, really well.
1: Well that's that's of course what I would love to hear because what I hope is that the reader latches onto that you know my own involvement in it and yet I hope not to overdo it right. and 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 uh, to have a right uh, the right sense of proportion
0: about the story. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about uh Carver's early life his time in Mississippi and Texas? Yes. Uh he grew up in a very
1: large family. Uh eight brothers and sisters. Uh, eight brothers, I should say. And uh, it turned out to be only one sister. There were other other uh, uh, daughters in the family, but they died quite young in infancy and in fact had a tremendous impact on, on, on Dana uh, in, in terms of his own sort of feelings later in life. Uh, he really took care of his sister, Mary, after he became a famous uh, movie star. So I think that 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 early tragedy, the loss of children, had a lot to do with shaping his own desire to be a father, and, and it he turned out to have, uh, you know, two lovely daughters. Uh, he was part of a very uh, religious family. Now His father was not only a Baptist preacher, but his mother, if anything, was even more devout than the father. You know, we're talking about a period, uh, Dana Andrews was born in 1909 uh, in the Deep South, and uh, this is the period when, in a sense, film is just beginning, especially in these small towns in the South, uh, where people are just beginning to see the first motion pictures, and of course they're silent. Uh, and there 's a great deal of suspicion of actors and actresses in the movie industry, and in fact, uh, not just dana 's father but many Baptist preachers uh, in from their pulpits fulminated against the motion picture industry and its sort of seduction of young men and women and in fact uh, uh, dana 's father, Charles Forrest Andrews, actually had a resolution past in a church in Rockdale, Texas, where he was the pastor, which forbid uh, the children to go to the theater. And so Dana grew up with this kind of um, uh, prejudice, hostility toward the movie business, but uh, like a lot of young people, he he rebelled. He was not rebellious in the sense of having a hard, giving his father a hard time. Uh, Dana was, I guess you'd say, rather devious. He'd sneak out the back door and go to the motion pictures, and the town, the townspeople, when he was in Uvalde, Texas, for example, uh, the, that was the big joke about the preacher's son who who slipped out the back and went to the movies. And Dana became absolutely mesmerized uh, by the motion picture screen. He would watch uh, actors like Ronald Coleman, who was both a great silent movie star and then a great a star in the, stock, in the talkies and motion pictures. And Dana, uh, he was an usher. He Then he became a projectionist in the movie theater, and he began to watch these actors. And uh, during the silent era, 1925, 1926, he would bring in recordings and do, in a sense, his own soundtrack key to various scenes in the motion picture. He really, in a sense took himself to film school. He was supposed to be an accountant. That's what his father wanted him to be, if not a Baptist minister, be an accountant, go into business. And as Dana said in a wonderful interview he did, um, he said, you know, I, I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to live my life with that like that. And uh, he really grew up with dreams of stardom.
0: Can you tell us the significance of the film's wings for him?
1: Yeah, Wings was a, a really important, uh, film. Uh, it's a William Wellman film, it's an action film, it's a, a film of Daring Do, but it's also got some wonderful acting in it. Uh, Gary Cooper, who was just getting his start, he started as an extra in films in 1923, and, and, but already you know, three years later, he get, was getting into one or two scenes, and he plays this doomed airman in Wings. And he makes this entrance. He comes into a tent, and although the the ostensible uh, stars of the film are Buddy Rogers uh, and Richard Arlen, uh, when you see this, uh, you, you can just you, you can predict. You, it's in retrospect, of course, but you can you can see the screen power of Gary Cooper, and I think. The young Dana Andrews or Carver, as people are still calling him, then looks at the scene, and it's it's not just, "Wow, this is acting, but it, you know this is the way to make your mark in a sense, this is the way to make your entrance into life.
0: So who was Norma?
1: norma Norma was his childhood sweetheart. He met her when they were barely 16 years old, both in high school. She was a very bright, intelligent, lovely woman, uh, young woman who he fell in love with. And uh, they just thought of themselves as, you know, going, they were going to be together forever. Uh, and uh, they, they were very close to each other throughout high school and college, although uh, Dana eventually dropped out of school and her family, they were a little worried about Carver Dana Andrews because he had a lot of, uh, as I found out, he had a lot of incompletes on his college record. Uh, He didn't seem to be serious enough, uh, and uh, they they certainly wanted her to marry a man who was going to settle down, and he was in Huntsville, Texas. He was 1,500 miles away from New York City, and almost the same number of miles away from Los Angeles, California. And it was almost unimaginable to people in Huntsville, Texas, to his own family, unimaginable. He was going to become a movie star? That just seemed ridiculous. They could see he had talent uh, because he was appearing in plays and he certainly had a winning personality and my god was he handsome that's what everybody said he was certainly the most handsome boy in town uh, and the girls always asked his brothers when there were parties is carver coming because that's who they really wanted to see so uh, he certainly had the makings of a movie star but it just seemed so you know it it, it just seemed improbable So Norma really had an uphill battle with her family. They liked Carver. They liked him well enough. Who who didn't like him? Everyone liked Carver Dane Andrews. He was a wonderful person to be with the life of the party. But as a husband, as a provider, uh, well, he hitchhiked to california in 1930 in the height of the depression determined to become a movie star and he begins writing norma long letters about you know how tough it is he's digging ditches he's driving a school bus he's picking figs he's not acting uh, and she has to tell her family something and she waits and she waits and she waits and finally he writes her a letter and he's actually has he's met someone else he doesn't say that to her he just says I think it's wrong of me to, to, you know, to make you wait for me. And she's expecting, because she expected him to come, you know, home like the White Knight and sweep her off her feet and then take her back to California with him. And he was just getting nowhere, uh, and he thought it was just unfair uh, to to keep her holding on. I think she would have held on. Uh, and he, it left a mark on his life. They, they remained friends actually through the rest of her life. She died before he did. Uh, and, uh, it got all turned around in the family though. That was, that was the, the point about Susan telling me the story because the story that Dana's daughter, Susan knew the one that had been passed down to her, so to speak, was that Norma's family had rejected, had spurned her father Uh, And in a sense, they had. Uh, But Norma uh, had offered at one point to somehow get out to California, although she never did did do that, actually. Uh, But he was really the one who called it off uh, when he met um, Janet Murray, uh, a woman who was involved in community theater uh, in Van Nuys, California. And Dana began to, and now he was, People were beginning to call him Dana. Dana was a huge hit in community theater. Uh, and and as soon as that begins to happen around 1934, 1935, he, he, he's not ready to go back home because he's not a success yet. It looks like he might be, but community theater is still a long way from starring in Hollywood films.
0: So how did he break into Hollywood? well what happened was and this is this this was, this was
1: in a sense by merit uh, he went to the Pasadena Playhouse, which was a community theater, but it was a well-known community theater. It was it was almost like a, a kind of like a farm team is for a major league baseball. That is, there were people who, uh, people like Victor Jory, for example, very fine actor, who uh, uh, went to the Pasadena Playhouse, and that became a vehicle because Hollywood talent scouts and so on would go to Pasadena Playhouse performances to to take a look at the actors and to see if they were movie material. Well, Dana showed up one one Sunday night. They had what were called these open tryouts, uh, and he tried out. He had been taking a lot of singing lessons. He had a wonderful baritone voice, and at one time was seriously thinking of being about being an opera singer, I think because he thought that was more respectable, at least in his family's eyes. His mother certainly said, oh, I would love to, you know, if you... Saying opera. That, that sounds very good to her. Uh, but he went to these tryouts because uh, someone had also told him, you're more likely uh, to get work as an actor some kind of work than you are as a singer. Uh, and so he tried out and uh, they, they, they liked his audition. He started right at the bottom, the proverbial, you know, spear carrier in a Shakespeare production, and just worked his way up, roll by roll, until by 1937, he was starting to get, get no, notices, and MGM did a screen test, that went nowhere. But by 1938, uh, he was he had become so accomplished. A member of the uh, Samuel Goldwyn organization went to one of his uh, performances and uh, it was on his recommendation that the producer Samuel Goldwyn finally signed uh, Dana Andrews to a movie contract in 1939. So it took him almost a decade to even get a movie contract and then another good three and a half years before you could really call him a movie star
0: you mentioned that he was unlike a lot of actors and that he really didn't invent any elements of his hollywood persona um i think the examples were raymond burr who invented his war record and then um who invented her whole childhood basically uh and that he was usually depicted as he was why was there a reason for that
1: yeah, it was extraordinary. Uh, I think the reason why I found this, because I've done a biography of Marilyn Monroe, and you're you're quite right, especially if you read the fan magazines. I mean, they're just so full of misinformation, partly fed to them by the studios and Marilyn Monroe herself. And Dana Andrews never did that. Um, and I think uh, it, it had to do with the kind of person he was, even though he had reacted against the the uh, Baptist preacher background and and uh, by the end of his life he called himself a humanist he had no religion whatsoever in that sense uh he um, he wanted to be authentic he wanted to be an authentic actor uh he wanted uh the, the he wanted really the public to, in a sense, recognize him for what he was, which was a very decent, sincere, authentic person. And so early on, uh, the movie magazines decided, well, I guess that's the angle. Here's a movie star who's not going to get divorced. Here's a movie star who's not going to have a lot of affairs. Here's a movie star that really likes being at home and playing with his kids. And so you'd see these photographs of him at home playing with his kids, uh, and it was true. Uh, that was a remarkable thing, uh, and it's what I found in interviewing not only his children, but friends of his children and many, many other people who knew Dana Andrews. This was, this was certainly not an act. To give you one example, very early on, even before he married his, his second wife, Mary Todd, the first wife died tragically after only two years of marriage and childbirth, uh, when he married Mary Todd uh... Be, just before he married her the studio the golden studio wanted him to do what most male movie stars at the time did which was date a lot take a lot of starlets out and be photographed and get a lot of publicity and so on and uh... dana was never very good at this and finally because when you were a movie star in nineteen thirty nine or nineteen forty you were you were property you were the property of the studio and Dana felt it necessary to ask Samuel Goldwyn, is it okay if I get married? <laughs> is it okay? Uh, and and Goldwyn actually said, let me think about it. He didn't give him an immediate answer. Uh, and then finally the studio relented after not too long a time. And, and in fact, one of the vice presidents of the Goldwyn studio said to Dana, oh, you might as well get married because you're no good at this dating business. <laughs>
0: So, how did he wind up getting the part in Lara?
1: He campaigned for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened was he had done some very good work with a, a very good director, Louis Milestone, who had done one of the first talkies, All Quiet, on the Western Front. And Milestone's uh, sort of claim to fame was he was incredible at getting actors to act together as an ensemble. And he did this marvelous film called The Purple Heart. Uh, which Dana stars in as Captain Harvey, these these pilots who are shot uh, shot down in in uh, Japanese-occupied China, and uh, so he became very close friends with Lewis Milestone, which was unusual too. Dana was not a big uh, socializer and didn't really have that many friends uh, in Hollywood, but uh, a few directors like Lewis Milestone were, and Milestone was offered. Uh, the opportunity to direct Laura. And I th- I'm still not quite sure why Milestone d- didn't want to direct, except the producer was Otto Preminger, and it wasn't easy to work with Otto Preminger. He was very autocratic. And that may have been one reason. At any rate, Milestone read the script, and it was this film noir. It was the story of, of this obsession with Laura, this woman who was supposedly murdered, and this detective who, you know, stands in front of her orchard gazing longingly at it and falls in love with it, what everyone thinks is a dead woman. And Milestone read this script and he said, Dana, this is the role that will make you a star. Well, one of the things that Dana did is he was doing a war film called Wing and a Prayer, which is also a very good film. He has a very good performance in it. And Virginia Zanuck, Daryl Zanuck's wife, uh, saw him in that film and she said, wow, she said, uh, you're really good. And she had only seen him as the second lead in B pictures, where it was somebody else who always got the girl, usually Tyrone Power, or even Randolph Scott before Dana Andrews. Uh, and Virginia Zanuck was impressed, and she she talked to Daryl Zanuck and said, you know... You ought to consider Dana Andrews. And then Otto Preminger, who was always, you know, adamant that he was right about everything, said, you know, I want Dana Andrews. And Zanuck threw out a lot of other names. Well, how about John Hodiak? You mentioned several uh, actors who were very popular at the time. And and Preminger stood firm and ultimately got his way.
0: Andrews is often cited as the embodiment of the male mask. Can you explain what this means in relation to Laura and his other work?
1: Yes, the male mask—this this, uh, this uh, I- image of uh, a male who uh, really rigidly controls his emotions, uh, where in, where the the emotion is is uh, almost hardly visible. In fact, some people who can't see it uh, would sometimes call Dana Andrews a wooden actor, which I think is a lack of perception on their part. But the, this male mask, you see it in Laura uh, when he, obviously he's becoming obsessed with her, but if you look at him, if you look at his mouth, for example, it's just this straight horizontal line. It's like he's keeping a grip on his emotions. Uh, for a great, for a very long time. Uh, and then finally, when she gives him, in a sense, some indication that she finds him attractive, there's just this flicker of a smile. It's like um, micro gestures, micro mannerisms that he, he engages in. He, he knew, I think, from that, that uh, upbringing as being a projectionist and watching those actors, that just the slight move of an eyelid uh just changing uh, your your smile slightly, or or smiling slightly, uh, conveyed just an incredible uh, amount of emotion so that when the character does feel some emotion when he does smile or when finally when the picture's almost over he actually kisses Laura it's, it's like an orgasm it's, it's, it's so romantic it's so powerful but the reason it's powerful is because the mask has suddenly been removed and uh, to give you one line from early in Laura uh, when when uh, um, Uh, Waldo Lidecker uh, is uh, uh, taunting the detective. Lidecker is this soigné, sophisticated uh, uh, character played beautifully, wonderfully by Clifton Webb. It's hard to take your eyes off Clifton Webb in this picture. And and Clifton Webb says to uh, uh, Mark, the detective, uh, to Dana Andrews, uh, don't you... uh, don't you ever call any women anything other than Danes uh and you know, and Dana has lines like, yeah, uh, or haven't you ever fallen in love with a woman and not called her a dame and and Dana's character Mark McPherson, says, well uh Dane uh you know uh in in Prospect Heights uh once got a fox fur off of me, you know, and so he sounds like he's a complete you know um uh macho. Uh, insensitive oath, but the film keeps dropping clues. At the very beginning of the movie, for example, uh, Mark McPherson, the detective, walks into Lidecker's sumptuous Manhattan apartment, and he's got these glass cases of these oriental objects, like a museum and uh, Dana walks in as Mark McPherson, and he starts to open, slide open this glass case and to to, uh, pick up this precious object. And that's when you hear Lidecker's voice. You don't even see Lidecker again warning him, you know, that's very precious, as if this, this, this oafish policeman couldn't possibly know. But the very fact that he's intrigued with this object, in fact, shows that he's a kind of connoisseur of beauty before he ever, you know, knows anything about Laura. Mm-hmm. And then there's another wonderful line in the film when uh, Vincent Price, who's playing one of Laura's boyfriends, uh, lies about the music that's being played at a concert. And and when Dana, uh, Mark McPherson, exposes the lie and says, you know, it wasn't, I can't remember, I think, I think uh, Price says it was Brahms. And Dana says, No, it was Sibelius. And and Vincent Price says, Well, you know, it was a concert, I fell asleep. And Dana as the detective says, Yes, I know, I fall asleep at concerts too. You know, and it's almost a throwaway line. But it's, it's he goes to concerts mm-hmm. so that by the end of the film it's not, you know, even though Waldo Leidecker has, has thinks this detective is an oaf he's in a sense completely misread him but it only works because there is a mask to begin with
0: mm-hmm. hmm. okay I'm going to put you on the spot aside from Lara, if we're excluding Lara from this equation what are the three Dana Andrews movies that we should see and why
1: okay uh, well we've got to mention um, the best years of our lives because uh, it was uh, some people say his greatest performance, he plays a returning uh, soldier, end of World War II, he was a bombardier. But before the war, he was a what was called a not a soda clerk, but a soda jerk, uh, to use the term at the time. Uh, and it's played with such authenticity. Now, Dana was not in the war. He certainly wasn't a bombardier. He was never in uniform. Um, but he spent a good deal of the war, a couple of reasons why he didn't serve. One was a physical uh, problem, but but the other was he had a wife and three children uh, and was deferred for quite some time. But he spent virtually the whole war, uh, we haven't talked about his alcoholism, but he was a huge drinker and he spent a good deal of the war drinking with servicemen. So he really had a performance uh was really authentic he really knew the man that he was he was uh uh impersonating so to speak so everyone mentions that for in fact uh Frederick March won an academy award uh best actor award uh and if you look at that film now you have to ask yourself why did Frederick March win and Dana wasn't even nominated so people who know Dana Andrews's career often talk about that it's just an just an outrage so you have to mention that Um, I would also mention a film that was made shortly after Laura, which is called Fallen Angel. Uh, And I think it's just a tremendous performance of Danis, in which he plays a down-and-out drifter, uh, a con man uh, who uh, essentially marries a woman for her money. And the woman uh, is played by Alice Faye. And a lot of people do not get this film. And I just think it's, it's every bit as good as Laura, if not better, and it's also an auto Preminger film. Uh, and the, the point in the film is that Faye, who's never been married and <clears throat> most people think of as a dupe, refuses to accept the idea that her husband is a con man. And the Dana Andrews character, there are various things about him where you can see he's redeemable. He does a number of really subtle things. The way he treats her when they're walking across the street in this bicycle where a car comes along and he takes her arm. And some of the banter, the dialogue between them, you can see that even though he's a con man, there's something else in him. So she refuses, absolutely refuses. To accept his own version of himself when he finally confesses to her that he's a con man. They go to San Francisco, and they're in a hotel, supposedly on their honeymoon, and he's about to bug out on her, uh, and she goes to the bathroom. She takes uh, a bath, and she comes out of the bath. You, you can't see her. I mean, the door is closed, but you know that's what she's doing, and she opens the door slightly, and she says, would you hand me a towel? And he hands her tongue. She does this two or three times, very matter-of-factly. What is she doing? She's treating him as her husband. It's, uh, it's fascinating, the psychology of it, because ultimately it dawns on him that this woman loves him for himself, that there really is something to love there. And in a sense, you can't say she makes him fall in love with her, but she, she perceives something in him that, that allows him to, Redeem himself, so to speak. So I just, I just see that as, you know, a tremendous, tremendous performance, and and tremendous film by Otto Preminger as well. The the direction of it is just great, and I guess the third film, uh, because it fits so well with this Mayo mask, and it really is almost a kind of trilogy: Laura, Fallen Angel, and then Where the Sidewalk Ends. Uh, Laura's 1944, Fallen Angels, late 1945, early 46, and then Where the Sidewalk Ends is 1950. And you have Dana Andrews, Gene Tierney, who is Laura, uh, in Laura, uh, are reunited. Uh, and he, he again, in a sense, he, he's, he's a policeman again. He's a detective. And his first name is Mark, as if to uh, remind people of Laura and the character. And it's, he's like a Mark who's become. even more cynical, jaded, again, uh, uh, seemingly beyond redemption. Uh, And the film, again, is about, uh, through his contact with this this woman who doesn't know about his past history, uh, but who immediately responds to to a side of him that he's been reluctant to show to other people, again, the male mask, Uh, that brings out this uh, honesty and sincerity and earnestness in him which was very much a part of Dana Andrews's character. He really relied on his wife, Mary Todd uh, in, in almost the same way that these characters in these films rely on her. So I'd say those three films.
0: Okay. Uh, so we're going to come back to the alcoholism in just a second because I know that's really yeah, important. Sure. But I do want to hit upon um, that he was active in protests against the House Committee on American Activities in the 50s. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, he um, uh he was a board member uh of the Screen Actors Guild uh beginning in the 1940s and uh he knew people like Ronald Reagan extremely well and William Holden both of whom were very uh well Reagan was a a liberal but he was already beginning to turn conservative in the late 1940s and become a fervent anti-communist and and uh, Dana had no history whatsoever in terms of um, Popular Front groups, you know, communist-inspired activities, and so on. Uh, nevertheless, his politics, I would have to say, were liberal, were leftist, uh, and uh, he attended many of these meetings. And he saw what happened, which was initially when when the blacklist was proposed, even the Hollywood producers said, "This is terrible." Uh, we can't allow politicians to run our business for us. But of course, they began to look at the box office and they began to look at, well, and even though people often think of the Hollywood 10 in a sense as heroes, because these screenwriters uh, accused of communist sympathies or of being communist told off the House Committee on Un American Activities, that really turned out to be counterproductive. Uh, because they simply made themselves look like radicals. And in, a, in, a, in effect, the studio felt, uh, rightly or wrongly, it was in a corner, and therefore felt it had no, um, the studio felt that they had no option other than to impose a kind of blacklist. Dana never forgot this. Uh, I don't think it was something that he thought he could do something about, uh, but he, he, he was never... He was never fooled into thinking that was the right way to go. I think he he found that a very regrettable episode in the whole history of the Screen Actors Guild and he appeared i should say he appeared uh, on nation on a nationwide uh, broadcast actually quoting the words of his of uh, his boss, so to speak, the producer Samuel Goldman. Samuel Goldman was quite remarkable. He was often called an independent producer, which meant in Hollywood simply he wasn't MGM, he wasn't 20th Century Fox. But Samuel Goldman was the independent in another sense. He was ready to go to HUAC and also tell them off, and they never called him. That's a missed moment in American history. Can you imagine if a Hollywood producer had gone to Washington, D.C., and not Humphrey Bogart, you know, not one of these actors, not one of these screenwriters, but a businessman, Samuel Goldwyn, who was known, you know, the Goldwyn touch, the Goldwyn pictures. Imagine if Goldwyn had appeared before a Congressional committee and told them, that they were full of baloney. (laughs) That would have been amazing. That would have been fantastic. And Golden was disappointed. And the committee knew that. Hueck knew that, that they could not, you know, they could call uh, the head of any other major studio and they would get someone who would cooperate, collaborate with them. But they knew that Golden didn't care, and so they didn't call him. Wow.
0: Someone should reimagine that and really make a movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, someone should make a movie because that's, that's a really missed moment in yeah. American history. Wow.
0: Um, so, he, as you mentioned, he was an alcoholic. Uh, how did this affect his work?
1: To begin with, it didn't. Uh, and it's a little hard to determine exactly when Dana started drinking, but it seems to be the early 1940s. Uh, I think... There's some mention of drinking in his diary before then but it it doesn't look like a problem it's not a not a serious problem but he wrote a letter to to his youngest uh, a younger brother, not his youngest, but to a younger brother, Charles in nineteen forty three which is before uh, Laura before he's going to start Laura about what a crappy place Hollywood is. There are all these hypocrites here there's all this vying you know this he was ambitious, but he didn't like the sort of cutthroat competition and so on and uh I think drinking uh was a kind of uh, uh, at least initially was a kind of outlet a way to relax and he 'd have to go to these when a producers invited him to a party he 'd have to go to these parties in a sense politic in a way that he really didn't like and I think so he started drinking a little bit more to to sort of cope and relax and 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 be a little bit more easy going at these parties uh and to relieve the stress he could drink all night. Uh, you know, he was still a, a pretty young man uh, in into his 40s, and he could show up uh, after all night drinking on the set in 1943 doing a film like The North Star, another Lewis Milestone film, and have a hangover, for sure. But, I mean, he had a photographic memory. And so there was no problem. I mean, they didn't have to delay production for him or anything. But even by the time he does Best Years of Our Lives, 1946, he shows up and he does a couple scenes. It's not that he doesn't know his lines, but there's something wrong with the timing. William Wyler, the director, says to him, Dana, uh, what you did is good, but it's not your best work. He says. Anytime you wake up in the morning and you feel like that, he said, it would be better, and he said this kindly, you know, it'd be better not to show up. Uh, Dana mentioned this many, many years later uh, in an interview, and he was impressed, and he said, after that, he stopped drinking, and you know, for the for the rest of that picture, because he thought Weiler handled that so diplomatically. But it was beginning to be a problem in the late forties and early fifties. Not in not in the sense of a Marilyn Monroe problem, where you're late for production. That almost never happened with Dana Andrews, but simply that. Uh, uh, Everything surrounding him became a, a kind of a problem, and and uh, Weiler didn't use him uh, again, for example. Uh, it became more difficult for him to get certain roles. And then, um, coupled with the drinking, in the late 40s, what happens? We get the advent of Gregory Peck and Marlon Brando, uh, actors like that, and a whole new generation of actors. And that also puts a kind of pressure on Dana because he plays very sort of, think of this, he's, he's, even when he's playing a con man, as I said, there's this kind of nobility, there's this kind of decency in him. But there isn't this sort of quirky, almost malevolent power that you get in you know, Marlon Brando. You know when when he's asked playing when he's playing a character one film and someone says, "What are you rebelling against?" And what does Brando say? "What do you got?" <laughs> you know. Well, that that's not Dana Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana Andrews is the gentleman hero, and the and the vogue for the Ronald Coleman gentleman hero by the end of the nineteen forties is over. Mm-hmm. So Dana drinks. What's interesting about Dana's drinking is he doesn't become a mean drunk and he doesn't become a self-pitying drunk. His family can never remember him saying, oh, woe is me, nobody wants me anymore. Because, of course, although but after uh, he makes Elephant Walk in 1954, he he, he and Peter Finch and Elizabeth Taylor are, are together in that film. After 1954, he doesn't really have an, an A-list picture, a leading man role again. Mm. But he sees that as an almost natural, organic development in a way. Of course, there's going to be a new generation of actors. He hasn't, He had an incredible perspective on this. Plus, he was still employable, even with his drinking. Uh, he, uh, only in one case, a, t- a terrible film, a remake of Melville's novel, Typey, uh, Treasure Island, where he, there actually, he was sued because he held up production. That that was the nadir of of his career in 1958, uh, and he he uh, uh, he does recover from that ultimately, but but he was definitely uh, on the decline, uh, and and there was no way, given the changing Hollywood industry, uh, the Motion picture companies losing their chain of theaters. There was no, there was no studio to back him in that same way.
0: Uh, what precipitated his recovery, and how did his alcoholism become a defining characteristic of his public persona?
1: That's a good question. Um, what happened was uh, after this incident with this film, where he actually held up production. He was a consummate professional. That was so mortifying to him. He quit drinking between 1958 and 1964. He, uh, he went to Broadway, and starred in Two for the Seesaw. Uh, Henry Fonda had begun that role and left after a year, and then Dana took it over, co-starring with Anne Bancroft, got wonderful reviews. That's another missed opportunity. Uh, he, he did, there was another play, Captain King's, but it was a flop, not due to him, but simply uh, critics felt that the script or the, the play was not good enough. Uh, he, he did a lot of television work uh, in the early 1960s, sober, Uh, and then in 1964, his first son, by his first marriage, David, dies of a brain aneurysm, Uh, and David was only 29, and uh, it just completely uh, uh, devastated Dana, and he did start to drink again. Probably worse than ever between sixty four and sixty nine somehow he did a lot of stage work in that period uh and how he got through he did he did the odd couple for example i it's even his children are hard put to explain how their drinking father you know went on day after day night after night in performances of that play and many other plays as well, but ultimately what happens Uh, is that his wife, Mary, who is, is, she's just his rock. She's a wonderful, she's a wonderful actress. She was a wonderful actress in her own right, uh, uh, but a wonderful uh, student of the theater and and historian of the theater, really. And she finally says to him uh, in 1969, uh, I'm leaving. I cannot, Stay married to you if, because he was at the point of delirium tremens. He was at the point of the doctor telling him, You know, if you keep drinking, you will die. Uh, and so she left. Uh, and he was uh, nursed back to health by a family servant of theirs, Minnie. Uh, and w- when Mary left him, that, that was a shock uh, because I don't think he could conceive of living without his wife. Uh, and he wasn't going to live if he kept drinking because he wasn't going to have his wife. And although he had gone to, you know, many sanitariums, he had tried alcoholics, anonymous, uh, various therapies, nothing seemed to work. And ultimately, he quit drinking the same way he quit smoking. He just quit and never, you know... uh, took another cigarette or another drink for the rest of his life. And what happened was, uh, I, and I think this became part of his persona, and part of probably what what made him stick to it, so to speak, is he he made this a public story. Uh, during the Nixon administration, John Volpe, who was uh, the Department of Transportation, uh, Dana wanted to make... Uh, commercials, public service commercials against drinking and driving. And he made two really very famous commercials because no, no one of his stature in, in Hollywood, certainly the Hollywood industry. And there were plenty of alcoholics there. Uh, no one did what Dana did, which was he went on television and said, you know, the, the script read, I was a former alcoholic. And he looked at the script. He said, "No, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And so in the commercial, he says, I am an alcoholic, you know, I've stopped drinking. He said, but when I was drinking and behind the wheel of a car, I was no more competent to drive a car than my five-year-old grandson was. You know, essentially, he was saying he could have killed somebody when he was drinking and driving. And in fact, it's on the public record, he, he was sued a few times. He did get into accidents. No one was hurt, fortunately. Uh, but that really could have happened to him. Uh, and then, to make it even more public, so to speak, uh, Ralph Edwards, who did this famous "This is your Life" series, uh, began his program uh, uh, about Dana talking about him as being a recovering alcoholic and and then when they, when they, Dana's interviewed on the program, he talks quite openly and frank, frankly about his drinking
0: What do you see as his legacy? I think his legacy
1: is, of course, his his great performances. Uh, I think his legacy is uh, um, all tied up, really, with that decade of the 1940s. He did some good work in the 1950s and some Fritz Lang movies, and he did some, some very good television work as well, including on Playhouse 90, which... To this day, so far, uh, not all of the Playhouse 90 uh, performances, because it was live TV, and they did do some recording, but maybe it's somewhere in a vault. But so far, no one's been able to find his performances. I think his legacy really is uh, this this notion of uh, the male hero, the gentleman hero, the the uh, uh, the hero who has his flaws uh, but has this fundamental decency and the word that, that I, I think of uh, about Nate, uh, Dana Andrews both the person and the actor is is the nobility of his performances when I wrote to Norman Lloyd who's almost 100 years old now he was in two films with Dana Andrews uh, he was in uh, A Walk in the Sun and uh, uh, a film actually it was a flop, a comedy, No Minor Vices but uh, when I when I uh, approached Norman Lloyd uh, he wrote me and he said dana was one of nature's noblemen uh and then when i wrote him again saying i'm coming to california i want to interview you he said oh dana was a prince among men and uh, that's not hyperbole uh that that there's that genuineness uh that comes out in the screen and of course so many of us who either become fascinated with hollywood or even fans of certain actors and so on you know it's the old sort of saw about biography people some people dislike biography because they read about raymond burr or marilyn monroe or whoever it is and they and they find out oh well the stories they believed in weren't true uh and that's the thing about uh, dana andrews he was the genuine article
0: well, thank you so much for talking to us today about Hollywood Enigma. Any idea who you'll be writing about next?
1: Oh, yes. yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, I actually interrupted the Dana Andrews biography. I was uh, working on uh, a biography of Amy Lowell, and uh, I'm well into that. <laughs> actually, I interrupted Amy, Amy Lowell twice. I have a biography of Sylvia Plath that's going to be appearing in late January. Uh, but Amy Lowell will be appearing probably about a year from now and everyone's going to wonder, well, how did he do that? <laughs> well, in, in, in fact, I've been working off and on, on, on Amy Lowell for about six years. Oh wow.
0: Well, that's exciting. I've been talking today with Carl Rolison about his new book, Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews. I'm Olaine Eaton, This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.